Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray. And uh, yeah, it has been a really interesting week in the old cybers and we'll be talking through all of that in just a moment with Adam Boileau, all the week's news. And then we'll be chatting with Airlock Digital's co-founder and CTO, Daniel Schell, in this week's sponsor interview. And uh, he'll be walking us through some of his own research uh, into how to own Microsoft boxes via document-embedded Office add-ins. And that's a really interesting interview, but uh, Adam, we're actually going to start off by talking about another Microsoft issue that people may have seen float by on the old, uh, you know, InfoSec Twitters. Let's talk about msdt.exe and the RTFs of doom. Oh no, this is, we haven't seen an office bug this much fun in a while. Uh, So this is... um it was found in the wild. Uh, I think first submitted to Virus Total from somewhere in Belarus. So, mm-hmm. take from that, what you will, and currently in active use by literally everybody. Uh, so, uh, you can, from inside Word documents, the you know docx files, RTF files, and indeed some other things, um, make up on web requests. And there is a registered protocol handler for the MS MSDT. Uh, yeah, which is some scheme. diagnostic tool that I'd never heard of. But yes, you yeah, can like invoke this thing through a URI. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, this is the thing that like, pops up when Word crashes going, oh my God, do you want to submit all of your memory images to Microsoft so they can you know, steal your Word bugs? Um, and yeah, it turns out that this is actually a known lolbin yeah. and you can just use it to execute arbitrary code, um, which is ridiculous. I guess uh, the so, unknown part was that you could do that from inside a Word document. Right? Well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, Sorry, I shouldn't yeah. laugh, but it's 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 funny. This one's funny. It is. I mean, it's obviously being misused for all sorts of bad things that aren't funny, but it's funny because like Microsoft protocol handler registrations, like this is the sort of thing that hackers were doing in the like mid two thousands with Internet Explorer. Um, yeah. You know, in the old days, you would just stick one of these in in you know, in your HTML file, serve it to IE and get code exec. And yet here we are in the year 2022 doing exactly this. Uh, oh, the reason the turned- reason I mentioned RTF too is because in the docx and the standard, you know, Windows formats, if you load it in like a protect the protected view or whatever, uh, this thing won't fire. But if you throw it in an RTF, like no problem. And with the RTF, like it'll trigger on preview. So like in Outlook in the preview pane or like in Explorer and your mouse over it and then wabam code exec, which that's bad. Uh, And then, you know, bootstraps onwards to, you know, to great victory for the attacker. Um, And even uh, somebody else pointed out on Twitter that you can trigger this, like if you're using PowerShell's wget or, you know, invoke web requests or, you know, other things that parse HTML content, you know, from attacker-controlled sources, like if you just W get a page off the internet in PowerShell, code exec, which mm-hmm. that, that doesn't seem ideal. <laughs> it does not seem ideal, in fact. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what to say about this. I, look, I, I have a feeling the exposure window uh, on this one is going to be pretty short, right? Like as you and I were talking before we got going and uh, as you, you know, it's your old line, the candle that burns twice as bright burns half as long. Uh, but it is in active use. Uh, I heard from uh, uh, Ryan Callenberg over at uh, Proofpoint there and uh, he says that TA413, aka Keyboy, aka Pirate Panda, which is a Chinese APT crew, uh, they're already using this and they're impersonating uh, the Central Tibetan Administration, you know, dropping it on, uh, you know, dissidents activists that sort of thing so that is the part that's not funny but you know (laughs) i've seen people say oh well it's just another bug and whatever i mean this is pretty bad like yeah this is pretty bad yeah it is it is worse than the average you know word or you know office related you know delivering documents via email sort of bug that we've seen in a while i mean people have gotten used to if you've got macros turned off and you know kind of modulo the the add-in things you're about to talk about later on in the show um yeah, it hasn't been that much of a, you know, a horror show in Office. But then, yeah, this is just... I mean, anytime you, that you can just email someone and preview pane triggers it is just bad. Well, and not um, only that, because, like, no... <laughs> so here's the other thing, right, that makes this particularly bad. Because it's, like, such a straight path through a URI to code exec, right, in this tool that people aren't looking for that behavior, EDR tooling is not catching this. Right, even even yes. allow listing software isn't catching this. I mean, it's it's pretty easy to uh, adjust it so that it does, but nobody's looking for this on their endpoint tooling. So it's party time. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, all of the, you know, desktop EDR people and allow listings software people, like everyone's been putting together, uh, you know, some good work to block this now, detect it in previous logs, do all that kind of hunting for it. So like, you know, your opportunity to use this is definitely going away pretty quickly. But yeah, as of, like, I think reporting was it had been in the wild, you know, a couple of months, seven what, seven or eight weeks. Yeah, seven uh, weeks. Since someone found the sample on VirusTotal, so. Yeah, and it was Kevin Kevin Beaumont who did a blog post on it, which is what uh, blew it up quite, uh, you know, sky high, basically. Nice yeah. work, Kevin. Yeah he's, yeah, he's pretty good at that, it seems, you know, like finding someone's <laughs> obscure tweet about, a, oh, this is a weird looking doc, and then next minute people at Microsoft are crying. So, yes, you know, that's a that's a public service you're doing there. It was a long weekend, too. He wrote it on a Friday before a long weekend. And I've done this, a similar thing. You would remember, Adam, I did a similar thing to Microsoft uh, before Thanksgiving uh, over a decade <laughs> yeah. ago. And it, yeah, it took it. Yeah. Forgiveness was like sought, but it may have taken a few years. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know what, what else to say about this. I mean, you know, the saving grace here is if the, you do have some good endpoint controls, you know, EDR might catch the payload, <laughs> you know. I mean, allow listing will, but, uh, but I mean, that's the point, isn't it? Like the, the yeah, your ability to stop this just by default is pretty um, <laughs> shaky. Yes, yeah. And I think, you know, there's been some good points made in InfoSec Twitter about, you know, like if you try and chase every single bug like this, you know, then you're going to have a bad time. And, and obviously having the generic ability to detect shit like this uh, happening, you know, reasonably easily and rapidly, um, and also having the telemetry afterwards to say, okay, we need to go find every time, you know, msoffice.exe has spawned, you know, something like this, like having, you know, a blended set of controls and detection options to deal with whatever the next Microsoft protocol handler someone looks at is, because, you know, this is a, uh, you know, a lesson from 15 years ago that perhaps Microsoft has forgotten, you know, yeah. from the IE stage and every hacker and his dog is going to be going and reviewing the Microsoft, you know, registered protocol handlers list and correlating well, against Lobins. It's funny go. what you say because we're old now and, you yes, know, you do are. see bug classes disappear and then reemerge with the next generation yes. of devs who just, they don't know. Yeah, they forgot why it's dangerous to have nasty protocol handlers. I mean, I remember, you know, Brett Moore, who's, you know, who I still work with to this day. I remember this yeah. talk. I was thinking of this yeah, the whole time you were talking yes, about yeah, it. But, like, but yeah. please tell the listeners. Yeah, yeah. He was, you know, I remember him, you know, reviewing protocol handlers and like one of the classic insomnia security shirts, you know, has a protocol handler bug on the back. Um, you know, and that's 2007, I think, uh, 2008 maybe. So yeah, it's, it's a, you know, well-worn technique that perhaps no one expected to come back and bite us in the ass in, in 2022 AD. Now, I'm guessing if you're running a modern EDR, uh, you know, or some other endpoint control worth its salt, they will, will have pushed some sort of mitigation for this. But like, what, what is the situation for people at the moment trying to deal with this? Well, that's it. I mean, EDR, uh, I don't know if Microsoft, there's been some reports that Microsoft perhaps knew about this in advance and there was some quiet patching done, um, but old versions of Office 2016, 2019, you know, have been shown to be vuln. Uh, so it's a little, like the patch situation is still evolving and a bit it's unclear. It's a little unclear, yeah. And I, I think yeah. they told someone to buzz off because it wasn't a real bug or something like, uh, but I don't think it was a, as comprehensive a report as what we saw in Kevin's blog the other day. So yeah, not handled well, as best we can tell so far. Yes, and I'm sure Microsoft are, you know, scrambling to sort it out and we'll get some good guidance and that kind of thing soon. But yeah, right now, you know, focusing on uh, allow listing, focusing on, you know, EDR detecting or preventing it from triggering is kind of, you know, where people are, are looking at that and hunting backwards. Yeah, I mean, look, it is a good point that you can't be chasing every bug uh, and it's nice to have some some tooling and whatever and try to zero-day zero proof yourself as best you can, defense in depth, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but yeah, it doesn't help that this one is particularly uh, good at bypassing the controls that people have <laughs> yes. put in place, you know, for that reason, right? So it's yeah. just, it's just a, it's an ugly one. You know, will it amount to much? I don't know. A lot of people are going to get shells, but, you know, that's situation normal, right? That is situation normal. And yeah, I think you know, whichever you know, research shop or intel agency uh, finally put that one together, that was probably a good day at the office. And I'm sure yeah. you know, a glass of beer or a vodka. Or, well, it's a pretty uh, you know, bad whatever. day at the office now, right? Because someone got their sweetness <laughs> yeah, crushed, just, right? Like, uh, someone just got their stuff torched, yes. Yeah. So, 
oh well. <laughs> yeah, the candle that burns twice as bright. Yes, as you, exactly. As you say. Exactly. Uh, mm. So pour one out for the msdt.exe <laughs> invocation via Office, but God knows where else you can get to it from, right? Yes, so, exactly. So um, that's the other exactly. question that I, I do wonder about. Uh, now we go from uh, bad Microsoft to good Microsoft, or should I say better late than never uh, Microsoft. Mm. Now this is probably the most consequential security news of the entire year. And I've, I, you know, Catalan put it in the Risky Business News newsletter last week. Uh, but uh, Microsoft is now switching all Azure tenants to sensible defaults. Uh, we had Brett Winifred on this show in a sponsored segment for Okta like last year talking about how insane a lot of these defaults are for like, you know, 0365 and stuff for, for you know, IMAP for God's sakes. <laughs> Everyone who's set up a tenant <laughs> after 2019 had sensible defaults. But people who had signed up prior to that, they still had all these absolutely like insane defaults um, on their Azure tenants. Microsoft is now going to bring existing tenants into line uh, with those 2019 defaults, and uh, you know they're doing this across their their entire customer base. This is going to have an absolutely massive impact uh, on a lot of these crews that do bulk malware stuff and and bruting and and, and things like this. This is this is actually really really good. Yeah, this is a really good move. You know, Microsoft are going to start popping up, you know, a dialogue telling the admins of these older customers that, hey, this is your chance to turn it on. Uh, they're also going to turn it on automatically uh, after 14 days. Uh, so like a whole bunch of people who don't, you know, really think about the security posture, don't necessarily have the expertise or the, you know, smaller organizations that don't have staff are just going to have the stuff turned on and then their users are going to get auto-enrolled into FA. And, you know, sure, some people are going to be sad about you know, that disrupting things for them. But, yeah, we're just going to be in such a better place um, after this process continues. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'm good on Microsoft for being willing to, you know, disrupt some people's lives to improve it for everybody. Well, I mean, it's totally a price worth paying, right? When you yes, look at yeah, the trash fire is, that yes. is the uh, their ecosystem right now. Uh, and, I, and I will say too, like, why is this a big deal? Well, even if you provision MFA to your users, if you are still using some of these insane legacy protocols that don't support MFA, Azure's like, yeah, no worries, brute away. Uh, and don't <laughs> yeah, worry exactly, about that yes. pesky MFA. Like how that's a situation that was unable, uh, able to stand for so long, just it boggles my mind. So yes, it's good but this is years too late in my mind yeah, yeah it is and you know we've been doing this against on-premise you know equivalents you know like outlook web access high ports and stuff where you could bypass multi-factor uh, so I, I guess for backwards compatibility reasons <laughs> the cloud had to do the same so yeah nice uh, that you know that ancient state of affairs uh, is going to come to an end now, GitHub uh, did an interesting thing on Friday. As I mentioned, it's a, it was a long weekend in the United States, and they put out a you know a bit of a blog post on a Friday before a long weekend, Adam, uh, that uh, <laughs> actually contains some interesting information about uh, NPM infrastructure and, uh, you know, some attackers may be compromising it, uh, escalating access there and stealing a bunch of info. Yeah, listeners may recall uh, that we talked a while ago about um, that attack that involved uh, OAuth integration with Heroku and Travis CI and GitHub, and that led to compromise of um, some portions or some users, uh, including NPM on GitHub. Um, the attacker, now that they've you know, pulled through and done the analysis, um, it turns out the attacker that did this air used that to gain access to some of NPM's uh, AWS infrastructure from there found a backup uh, of uh, some kind of registry service machine and inside that machine were amongst other things uh, an archive of user information from about 2015 that contained usernames, password hashes, email addresses for 100,000 NPM users. So that's not great. Uh, there was also a bunch of package manifest data, package metadata uh, up to 2012 uh, that was also in the backup of this machine and you know, a bunch of other information about private packages, uh, you know, metadata of private packages uh, in NPM. So that's not great. Um, GitHub has at least rummaged through the logs, uh, identified that although the attackers did have access to like write to some of the S3 buckets that contained packages, uh, they all still match their hashes and probably haven't been modified. But yeah, this is, um, you know, I remember when we were talking about this on the show, like understanding the impact of this at the time was pretty difficult. So I'm glad that GitHub's pulled the thread. Um, but, but I, I yes, still don't uh, know that we're totally 
across everything that's happened here. I don't know that GitHub is totally across everything that's uh, that's happened here necessarily. It, the whole thing's just got a little bit of wiggle room in the in the in the wording. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they, um, you know, they do seem to be taking pretty strong you know, kind of countermeasures. So, for example, they went through and password reset everybody in that 100,000 user list, mm. um, which is a good a good start. But, um, yeah, this kind of just goes to show how difficult it is to understand, you know, the context and the impact of compromises when you're talking about lots of different cloud infrastructures all glued together with OAuth and, you know, reasoning about those things is very different than when we're reasoning about what's the impact of compromise of a Unix box or a Windows machine or a domain, right? Because... The insides of these infrastructures are still a bit opaque. You know, reasoning about the impact is hard. Uh, so we have to rely on you know the vendor or you know the organizer, the managers. You know, like in this case, GitHub to tell us and explain to us. And yeah, as you say, like that doesn't necessarily answer all of our questions. No, no. But uh, you know, some are just some some things. Just we never know, do we, Adam? No, some things just happen in the clouds, as they say. That's right. Skewered by clouds. Uh, Just quickly, Twitter copped a $150 million fine from America's FTC because they were taking phone numbers that people provided for MFA uh, and using it to target those people with advertising. And, uh, you know, you cannot do that. So they had to pay a $150 uh, $150 million fine. Uh, So there you go. Uh, what else have we got here? Ah, yes. Now, <laughs> CyberScoop is reporting that the uh, Russian government's prosecution of the Revil crew, uh, the the you know the eighteen who were arrested in January, uh, that prosecution is stalling out because there is not much cooperation coming from the FBI uh, these days, which doesn't necessarily surprise me. I mean, who knows what the true story is here? But the idea that the FBI isn't handing over uh, evidence or, or cooperating uh, in the prosecution now, I mean that. Um, you know uh, that that is possibly something that happened. Yes, and I, I, you know, the Russian spin on this has been, you know, that the FBI or the American authorities are not cooperating, and so what can we possibly do? You know, we've seized twenty Lamborghinis. <laughs> you know, maybe we'll just keep that, and everyone can go on about their days. So um, there's also been some discussion that maybe the, you know, the Revil crew should be, you know, forcibly enrolled in the Russian security services to, you know, go and help the cybers. Uh, so maybe that's an outcome. But yeah, either way. You know, we were all curious as to why those Revil arrests happened and then what was going to happen as a result. And yeah, I don't like it winding up with no conclusion like this is probably not a surprise to most people given the way these things go in Russia. No. And uh, look, there's been a bunch of ransomware attacks that we're not going to talk about this week. But one that I thought was notable was an Indian airline named uh, SpiceJet actually had to cancel multiple flights due to a ransomware attack. So, you know, just one of those. Uh, examples of further real-world impact from ransomware attacks. Yeah, Indian Twitter was pretty full of people, you know, stuck in the airports and complaining, uh, you know, about the sort of level of disruption to their lives. Uh, and yeah, the airlines seemed to be, you know, kind of running around. Bunch of flights cancelled. A uh, bunch of other things went wrong. Uh, they seem to be back in service now, which is, you know, given how complex airline infrastructure is, is, is good work. But yeah, it just goes to show, you know, ransomware is impacting you know, regular people's lives. We got a report here from the Reuters team. Uh, again, just quickly, uh, Russian hackers are linked to new Brexit leak website. Google says, uh, and that's uh, from Chris Bing, James Pearson, and Raphael Satter. Uh, no real surprises there, uh, are there, Adam? You know, it's just the the typical, you know, hack and leak. Uh, DC leaks, but Brexit is basically the story here. Yeah, they hacked a, a bunch of uh, British public figures and public servants and things. Uh, seems to have gotten hold of a bunch of mails from Proton Mail. Uh, so whether they compromised accounts or how that worked, we don't know. But then, yeah, put together into a, a leak site, uh, making a bit of you know trouble in Britain um, when Russia could perhaps do with some distractions. So yeah, pretty pretty standard mo. Uh, we've got a report here that Catalan found. It's in Russian. Uh, it comes from RBC. Uh, so Russian media is reporting that Russian companies are firing Ukrainian IT staff because they can't be trusted. And, you know, you think, oh, on, on one hand, oh, that's terribly unfair. But, like, if I was, if I was a Russian CISO, I would probably be firing the Ukrainians who worked in my <laughs> company, man. You know, that, that, was, that was my journey reading this. I just thought, you know, oh, that's terribly unfair. And I'm like, well... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, it's not surprising. Um, there's a few like Russian employment law people chiming in in the article saying how they have to go through regular process. But yeah, uh, it, it seems like if you were a you know Unix sysadmin 
uh, Ukrainian Unix admin and a Russian organization, especially one that had ties to state services or infrastructure, yeah, you'd probably be worried about your job full stop. Uh, well, so, but I mean, yeah, you'd also not, be thinking that it's your duty uh, to RMRF well, the whole thing, right? Y- so y- you would be thinking that, yes, exactly. So, so a, a look, if you are a Ukrainian admin in Russia listening to this, uh, I would suggest that you do the RM- RMRFing now because you're about to get fired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good <laughs> advice. Please do so in a way that maintains your personal safety as best as possible. That's but right. yes, RMRF shark, you should uncage it yes. and let it chomp the way through the network. Burn it down. Just mm-hmm. burn it. Burn it down. Smell of burning data. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yum, yum. Mm. Uh, we got one from Joe Cox. Uh, we actually missed this one last week. Uh, this was this was uh, reported just prior to our last show going out. Um, but there's been a mountain of data. Uh, uh, hacked apparently, allegedly, uh, from some of these awful camps in China where thousands of Uyghur uh, Muslims have been detained. Uh, So a whole bunch of their info has been stolen, uh, given to an NGO and then uh, uh, distributed to the media. I don't know that there's a a huge amount of, um, you know, cyber in this story to talk about. But you always wonder, you know, was this uh, activists or some government somewhere looking to um, take China down a peg? No idea there. I mean, it's, yeah, it's impossible to know. But that's why, you know, that's why it's worth mentioning, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, having just talked about Russians doing that to the British, the idea that other people would do that to China is not a big stretch. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we just, we, just, we just don't know. Uh, I mean, I suppose... To some extent, it kind of doesn't matter. Like the data stands on its own legs, and you know we'll see whether there are some, you know, insights to be gained. Obviously, there's a you know bunch of media organisations rummaging through and finding things like you know speeches and guidance given to police officers about how they should respond to situations at the camp. So it's you know it is you know, there's definitely data in there, and you know yeah. its authenticity seems to have been confirmed. Um, well, so it is interesting when, when the Chinese government says these are just training camps. You know, it's like a community college uh, for, for our Uyghur friends. And then you get these documents that say, um, you know, the guards are instructed to shoot anyone who is trying to leave, which tends to contradict the uh, official line there, Adam, just a little bit. Just, just, just a smidgen, yes. Because last time I checked, uh, yeah, they don't, they don't uh, shoot you for trying to leave a uh, training facility in most places. That's not how most it goes. Uh, there's a whole political stink happening in Spain right now as part of the fallout of this NSO spying. Uh, You know, the government is alleged to have spied on the Catalan, you know, separatist movement. Uh, It turns out 18 of the 60, they had court orders for them, which makes you wonder, the other people who got owned uh, as part of the Catalan, you know, party, uh, the, the rest of them, the rest of the 60, either it was Spain's intelligence service, you know, doing it without a warrant or it was someone else and we just don't know. Uh, and of course, the, the prime minister also had uh, this sort of stuff on his phone and, and whatnot. So yeah, just shells flying around everywhere in Spain and now there's a whole bunch of political fallout with um, uh, various people getting, various intelligence bureaucrats getting knifed and yeah, it's just pretty spectacular blow up in Spain is what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah, and their government is comprised of a coalition that does include some of the Catalan separatists. So, like, it's just, it really does have the potential to make quite a mess politically or is in the process of making quite a mess politically in Spain. Uh, and uh, it is just kind of interesting seeing NSO group, you know, tooling going in both directions. <laughs> you know, that's the, the classic, you know, arms manufacturer wants to sell to both sides of the conflict to maximise profits. And, you know, we don't even know, we don't even know how many people are NSOing people in Spain. Like, is it the Moroccans? Is it the Spanish? Yeah, yeah, is it the Catalans? Yeah, yeah. Is it somebody else? Who knows? Who Everybody's knows? getting NSO. Um, Oprah meme. Wonder how NSO is going these days. I can't imagine too well. <laughs> Probably not so well, no. It's, especially if all of this Spanish nexus was, you know, if everybody's in there, that's a good part of the customer base, perhaps. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> Turns out 20% of their revenue was attached to shells on Spaniards' phones. Um, there you go. Uh, in, in news, it's absolutely shocking, Adam. Uh, Caesar or CISA. I got. I got to remember. That's the correct pronunciation. CISA. CISA has concluded its investigation into Dominion voting machines, and has found no evidence that security vulnerabilities in Dominion voting machines have ever been exploited. And uh, I'm. I'm stunned. I'm absolutely stunned. And there's going to be some very. <laughs> I would say there'd be some very disappointed conspiracy theorists out there. But the problem is, conspiracy theorists are n- never really respond to facts, uh, especially no. like a government agency saying no. Uh, the election wasn't hacked. Uh, so, yeah, they're just not going to listen. They'll just put their fingers in their ear and say, you're part of it. You're part of it. 
Yeah, that is exactly exactly conspiracy life. Um, they went through and looked at, there was a big report about some of the, the vulns and the machines, uh, and some of these vulns were stuff like, they can be software updated. <laughs> it's like, well, well, yes, they can. Um, you know, big vulnerability there, guys. Uh, but yeah, they looked at the overall system, they looked at the logs, they looked at the procedures and processes around, you know, how people had access to the various machines and all those kinds of things, and concluded that overall, you know, whilst there were some plausible technical vulnerabilities, they were just not practically usable, and indeed there was no sign of them being used. So, seems like you, as you say, like what we would expect. But yes, conspiracy theories not swayed by facts. Ah, now let's talk about these apparent vulnerabilities in the FIDO two protocol, Adam. A bunch of researchers did some heavy, heavy, heavy crypto uh, research into FIDO2 and they had some findings. Uh, you know, I'm very cautious when talking about stories like this because the headline says researchers identify FIDO2 protocol vulnerabilities. Uh, and, you know, that might be true. But usually when you're talking about bugs in this sort of stuff, it's like very weird edge cases and like little incremental uh, flaws. Uh, I know you haven't read the paper on this one, but what's your feeling on how serious this stuff is? Um, so, like, academic research into, like, provable security, like, formally proving the security of crypto systems, right, is, a, you know, is a very nuanced field, and sometimes the, you know, the practical implementations of systems are just, you know, the, the formal stuff isn't super relevant. In this case, uh, they looked at, um, so the whole, the overall end-to-end -end feed process involves the the thing authenticating like the browser and the back of the service that you're authenticating to a website uh, and then some kind of security authenticator you know like a token or a mobile phone or whatever and so there is a communication between like the browser and the authentication device um, and what they found was that that particular protocol it doesn't meet the kind of formal proof of security that they that they wanted, and they proposed an alternative that does address some of those. And this is um, basically trying to deal with cases of man in the middle between the browser and the authenticating token, um, so that the, the USB key or the phone or whatever else. So that protocol didn't meet the standards. The browser to the server leg, um, you know, they were able to formally prove that. So uh, essentially, yeah, it's it's about situations where you're in the attacker is potentially in between the browser and the authenticated device. Which, when they were a USB token, like you're talking about being on the USB bus between devices, less likely. When you're talking about Bluetooth, or you're talking about mobile phones. Uh, that are not physically connected, there is some more networking in the way, that's where this protocol being secure matters. So um, they've proposed some changes. Obviously, the FIDO standard has been a long time in the works and you know, changing bits in flight is probably going to be difficult. But it is really, it's you know, as you say, because of its very widespread adoption and its future as solving passwords as a security thing, you know, it is really important that we understand the security properties of this system really, really well. Uh, and as we roll it out in ways that involve other sorts of authenticators, this may become more important. That was my read of the kind of summary of it. Like the paper itself is pretty dense. Um, and, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not that much of a hardcore crypto guy, but that was my read uh, of what they were trying to say. Yep. Well, I will link through to the paper, uh, Provable Security Analysis of FIDO2. I have linked through to the PDF in this week's show notes. So if you would like to read a 39-page, really deep crypto <laughs> paper, <laughs> dear listener, uh, have at it. Now, uh, moving on now, you remember last week we spoke about this attack against uh, NPM and PyPy, right? Supply chain attack, a big deal. Um, uh, someone had managed to get a malicious, you know, take over a couple of uh, accounts and whatever and push some malicious packages. We also spoke about how the, the United States Department of Justice, Adam, uh, issued new guidance uh, saying that good faith security research should not be charged as a federal crime. <laughs> <laughs> now it seems like timely. <laughs> now it seems like the person who did this attack against PyPy and NPM may be hoping that that guidance sticks because they have, <laughs> un you know, they have <laughs> they have outed themselves uh, as the person who conducted this attack. But they say this was good faith security research, Adam. They wrote a blog post <laughs> and everything saying, no, no, this was security research. I was just stealing all of those AWS keys through malicious packages to see if it could be done. <laughs> well, I mean, A, clearly it can. So on that point, your research conducted. Um, but yeah, this person who went by the username Socket Puppets uh, on a few sites. Um, I'm guessing that's, uh, you know, that, uh, that might be an alt. <laughs> Just a wild guess. <laughs> Just a wild guess, yes. Um, 
one of the so they wrote up a, uh, you know a medium post talking about their quote research unquote um which i think we can all agree was an actual attack um and uh, as part of this they had actually showed up on reddit and said hey look we've updated these packages that haven't been touched for eight years with some great new updates uh so that also doesn't seem super researchy to me. <laughs> if you're an ethics committee at university, I don't think that, uh, you know, this would pass any tests. But yes, they've uh, outed themselves somewhat. And um, I guess we will see what happens to them. It certainly did not feel like good faith security research to me. Mm, he or she is sweating bullets right now, I'd imagine, yes, waiting I for that knock at the door. Yes. Uh, now, uh, a while ago, we spoke about this Israeli uh, private eye who's been imprisoned in the United States for uh, doing, uh, basically acting as a cutout and uh, procuring the services of Indian hacker for hire company Beltrox, right, to do a bunch of uh, bad deeds. Uh, turns out this guy was also working for Russian oligarchs and doing, you know, Beltrox procurement for a bunch of Russian oligarchs. Uh, so, yeah, busy private eye, busy private eye whose job <laughs> mostly seemed to be procuring, like, Gmail brute forcing uh, from an Indian, Indian company for his clients. <laughs> yes, I imagine, you know, that this is a place that, must be quite difficult when you think about the nature of the clients and you've got, you know, victims that are angry and powerful and you've got clients that are angry and powerful and you're stuck in the middle uh, taking the rap from, uh, I guess, from all the sides as well as law enforcement. So, yeah, bad bad times for this guy. Uh, and, you know, I know when we talked about Beltrox earlier on, you know, in, you know, over the years, you know, we always suspected that they were this involved in this kind of stuff, you know, yeah. selling to private detectives and that kind of thing. So nice to see the threads kind of unravel and start to see end-to-end, -end, you know, what it looks Customers, like, yeah. No, I think I think victims. you're right because it's it's interesting to see how the cutouts work in this case because the last time we spoke about this guy, it was Wirecard, right? Who was, uh, you know, the German company that was involved in all sorts of like fraud, uh, financial fraud and whatnot. And, uh, uh, you know, they were cooking the books and whatever and journalists were writing about it and then they got this guy to get Beltrox to like spy on the journalists. And it was just, you know, just real crazy stuff. So it is interesting to see what that what that end-to-end -end thing looks like and how people can sort of hide behind, oh, well, I just hired a PI to get me some info. I didn't yeah. know they were going to go and, you know, do this. But you did know. You did know. Yes. Um, yeah. And, you know, because we always focus on the hacking part of it, right, because that's our beat, but it's, you know, done in a much larger context. You know, an aluminium, Russian aluminium tycoon yeah. having a business dispute in Austria. You know, that's context that's useful for understanding where all the technical stuff fits in. I mean, if you're named in a Reuters report about illegal work you have done for a shady Russian oligarch, I'm guessing there's a fair chance you're going to be found dead at the bottom of a window from COVID. Probably, yes. <laughs> that that is, tends to be how it goes. Now, uh, Verizon, uh, the US telco, having a pretty bad time because someone stole a database. This is a Lorenzo story from Vice. Someone stole a database that contains uh, the full name, email address, corporate ID numbers, and phone numbers of hundreds of Verizon employees. Now, why is this a problem? Well, if you were the sort of crew who liked to social engineer uh, Verizon employees so you could do things like SIM swaps, I am guessing that information's going to come in kind of handy. It does seem kind of useful. And, of course, the information was obtained through socialing a Verizon employee sure. uh, to be convinced that the person calling was from IT support and they took over their machine and then scraped out the uh, you know company internal directory. Verizon has said it doesn't really matter. Uh, it's publicly, you know, it's public information. Uh, as an extra twist, the person who nicked it uh, asked Verizon to pay them not to disclose it. Uh, they asked for a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, Verizon declined to pay it. Uh, and now here we are, you know, it being shared with the media uh, to publish Verizon for not paying them, I guess. I got I to gotta just say, this isn't in the news sheet, but I, I just came across like probably the best bit of, you know, pseudo social engineering I've seen in ages is uh, sweeping through Twitter right now, targeting blue ticks. It's been going on a while, apparently. I hadn't really paid much attention to it. But Kevin Rothrock, who's the Medusa guy, writes a lot of stuff about Russia, he posted a screen cap of one of these attempts against his account. And I thought that was notable because he would be of interest to the Russian Federation, right? So I like did a quote tweet saying, geez, you know, uh, probably the Russians going after him. And then everyone's like, no, this is, this is everywhere. But what they do, right, is they take over a verified account. They change the name in the bio 
and they changed the bio to say I work at you know Twitter doing safety or whatever and they changed the uh, uh, profile pic or icon or avatar or whatever you want to call it they changed that to the Twitter logo so if you go to that profile you see a verified profile with a Twitter logo uh, with a full description saying you know I work in San Francisco at Twitter HQ and then, of course, they DM people and say, hey, you're going to lose your blue tick, uh, you know, unless you, you know, go to this form immediately or whatever. Now, it's actually pretty convincing. I was, I was actually quite impressed by this one. So what they're doing, of course, is they're going around and just hitting all the blue ticks with this scam and they're collecting creds, which means they're able to propagate it to further blue ticks and it just keeps going and going and going and going. And I just think that's great. But you would think Twitter would just maybe flag some of these. I mean, the messages are pretty generic going to these people like the solicitations are pretty generic and you'd think they would be able to filter them but <laughs> evidently not yes i imagine twitter is probably responding to that because that you know having a whole bunch of blue ticks ruined is gonna make them look pretty bad uh, so yeah there's a lot of people whinging about it um, amongst the twitterites so yeah, I imagine they're onto it. But yeah, smooth scam though. Like yeah, just, yeah. Yeah, smart, smart plan. Yeah, like when you look at it and then you go to the Wayback Machine and you see that, you know, the the account that calls themselves, you know, John Smith or whatever is actually, you know, a woman from Italy who is a freelancer for a wine magazine or something, you know, and it's just yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like why, why can you change the bio? Like, why can you change the name on a verified account? Anyway, so many questions, but yes. that's that's we're going to get bogged down here if we try to figure out what's going on in Twitter's head. <laughs> if we try to solve Twitter's problems, yeah, yes, we'll exactly. be here all day. We will be here a while. Uh, <laughs> moving on. So one of these BEC scammers, uh, Mr. Woodbury, uh, the Americans got him, locked him up, and they didn't bother to seize some of this Bitcoin because, well, you know, he's locked up. Uh, it moved. So now they have acted to, uh, to seize it. So that's just a fun little one that, uh, that uh, Catalan spotted. Yeah, that's pretty, it is pretty funny. And so maybe they should have seized it in the first place rather than assume that he had only private key is in his head. Uh, we don't know who else yeah. uh, had access to it. And I imagine the place that the 151 and change Bitcoin went is probably pretty toxic right now. Yeah. Uh, so if that was you, maybe don't <laughs> move it again for a little bit. Uh, now we're on the tail end of it now. Uh, we've got a dark net called uh, Versus that has shut down. This is a bleeping computer story by Bill Tallis. Uh, a dark market named Versus shut down uh, because someone disclosed closed a bug in it basically and they just went plink off the internet which i mean i gotta say seems sensible it does seem sensible they've had a couple of issues in the past which um as dark markets go like they were actually very honest and open about how they dealt with security issues in their platform like can help build a lot of trust at uh, this time they decided that it's just not worth trying to fix everything again uh, and so they're going to exit it doesn't even look like they're pulling an exit scam like they, they're providing mechanisms for everyone to get their escrow accounts out and and so on and so forth so what's the point of being crimi uh, criminal if you're going to be that honest i don't get it <laughs> i know right it does seem a little, like, a little strange but yeah it feels like maybe there was some sql injection or something or maybe there was some bug that you do file read and then there's some database dumps or something like that because the you know whoever did it uh posted it on some other like dark market discussion forum thing um but yeah they're they're just gonna shut down they've had their three years worth of making money and moved on and that's a that's some smart crooks. They're going to sail away into the sunset, but they should have exit scammed. Like this is how it's done. You don't reshape a business, a fundamental business model, guys. Come on, don't try to reinvent the yes. wheel here. Um, yeah, this is bad innovation. You're supposed to exit, exit the scam. It's part of the life cycle. That's right. You know, you're doing it wrong. Uh, okay, mm -hmm. so final story this week, and I, you can tell, right? I'm sure you can tell that I put this one in here for you. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, you did. Uh, so there was some research a few years back now from Eclipsium talking about vulnerabilities in the kind of lights out management systems, uh, you know, uh, platform management controllers, BMCs, ILOs, ILOMs, whatever you call it for different vendors, um, where, you know, as root on a machine that's running on hardware that has one of these uh, controllers, you can then kind of escalate up into it and, uh, you know, use that for persistence, use that for moving between virtual machines or, or whatever else. Um, most of the vendors that were reported to uh, by Eclipsium for this kind of class of bugs, which they called pants down, um, so that's nice. Uh, Quanta, uh, who make a bunch of uh, you know kind of custom systems for all sorts of cloud providers, they apparently actually, whilst they patched it, they did not bother to roll those patches out and make them widely available to customers. And several years later, uh, you can still use this technique uh, on Quanta machines. They so, did patch it, but they yes. put the patch in a filing cabinet in a disused lavatory in the basement with a sign on it that says, beware of the leopard. <laughs> exactly, yes. And customers that don't even know that they have these bugs are supposed to somehow turn up and ask Quanta for patches for their 
you know, lights out management system. So yeah, not widely distributed and uh, still somewhat vulnerable. So yeah, a little bit of nose rubbing in uh, being done uh, over on ours by Dan Gooden about this. Yeah, happy days. Uh, and don't forget to, if you want to get uh, Risky Business News uh, three times a week, uh, subscribe to Catalan's new Substack, riskybiznews.substack.com. That's free too. I had a couple of people say, oh, I didn't subscribe because I assumed you had to pay for it. No, it's free. So do go subscribe to that. And of course, there's the co- uh, corresponding uh, podcast. You can head to risky.biz slash subscribe to get the RSS feed or just search for Risky Business News uh, in a podcatcher and you will find it. That's a whole separate podcast three times a week. Uh, Catalan's doing really well with that actually and um, yeah, it's great. Uh, so there will be news that we didn't cover uh, in this podcast because uh, yeah, he's doing such a good job of covering uh, so much of it. But Adam, that is actually it from you and me this week. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, my friend and uh, I'll catch you next week. Yeah, thanks so much, Pat. I will talk to you next week. That was Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news. And uh, just before we continue, we have a new demo up on our YouTube channel. Sergio Gonzalez from Red Canary walks us through uh, its service. Uh, Red Canary is a detection and response provider that you may have heard of. And uh, yeah, they do very cool stuff. I will drop a link into this week's show notes so you can check that one out. Uh, I didn't promote it last week because the show was sponsored by Thinks Canary and Red Canary, Thinks Canary, just too many canaries. So I kicked it to this week. Um, okay, it is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Daniel Shell of Airlock Digital. Airlock Digital makes allow listing software that is actually deployable at scale, which is a hell of an achievement. And uh, you can find them at airlockdigital.com or go have a look at the product demo I did with them on our YouTube channel. I'll link through to that uh, in the show notes. Uh, But yeah, here is Daniel joining me to talk through uh, some research he did into malicious Microsoft Office add-ins. Here he is. When people think of Office add-ins, they tend to think around, um, you know, the Grammarly add-in or the scanner or the PDF converter, things that sort of help them or manage the Zoom add-in, right, for Outlook or something like that. Um, and that had been already researched by Bohops about being like a method of persistence, right? You use Visual Studio, create an add-in, you know, you go into Word, and every time you word Word, your payload will load. And I was actually trying to recreate that because one of our customers had asked us, hey, do you does you know, Airlock stop this sort of stuff? And I said, I don't know. Um, so I was researching that to see if I could recreate it. And thankfully, Airlock did block it. But when I was doing the work I, in the Visual Studio um, Solution Builder, I saw, hey, you can actually make a document add-in. And I'm like, what is a document add-in? And this is for Word Docs, Excel, PowerPoint, Visio, like every Office format. And I realized it's exactly the same thing but inside a document um it's and like the way it's that like works, a, a turducken of fail basically <laughs> yeah. it's like a, it's like a yeah, malicious like, a malware turducken yeah and, you know i think the intent is that you know office vba has been around forever and vba is a pretty old language <laughs> um so it's pretty much i guess the way that you replace vba with net code in whatever language you like it to be and you, know, you can have a document and you know, I think the traditional way that this would work is that you, know, you run the document from a folder and it's called the .NET DLLs and stuff in that same folder. When you load it, it asks you have, you have a trusted publisher or it's just local on disk so it's okay and it loads. Um, but if you send it for email or you, you open it from the internet and the DLL is not there, you can actually sort of build the project that it will go get it. And you know, this allows you to have sort of the payload hosted on a website. It's, you just have the, only the document sent to a user the user opens it up, you know, depending on the context, they might get a security prompt, and then they click the button and it'll run and download the code. And what was really funny after that as well, why I found is that, you know, they even extended this capability for auto-update capabilities. <laughs> so you can actually update the payload remotely, and it's all built in. It's like your C2 framework is ready to go um, when you want to add a new feature or have perform a different task if they're sort of opening the same document again. Which it, also it's great. Problem. <laughs> it's great that it does a certificate check, but I believe your solution to that was just going and grabbing one of the you know stolen Nvidia certs from some shady forum, right? And then it uh. then it showed as a legit <laughs> publisher. Yeah, the, the the Nvidia one in in particular wouldn't work because it's been sort of revoked and needs to be like key. Uh, so t- not revoked. The timestamp needs to be correct, right? The timestamp signing is after it expired. So in that case, that one doesn't work. But look, any any code signing certificates that's legitimate would be fine. So you know, attacker yeah. can just go buy their own or steal some legitimate valid certificates, and they're gonna be fine. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's yeah, it's it's just one of those speed bumps, isn't it? So okay, so to recap. 
you can basically craft a Office document that when loaded uh, will prompt a user saying something like, you know, do you want to install this add-in or do you want to run this add-in? Uh, shows the publisher and then they hit go and you're pretty much, from that point, I understand the payload of choice was basically a Cobalt Strike beacon, right? So you could just like from Word doc to Cobalt Strike. Yeah, like, you know, if you don't have a Cobalt Strike screenshot in your blog, is it even an InfoSec blog, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so one thing that complicates this, though, is that there is Mark of the Web, right? Because if I understand it correctly, if a uh, Word doc, you know, if the Office document in, in question has the Mark of the Web, then it just won't allow this add-in thing to run. So the way to get it, uh, and for those of who, who don't know, Mark of the Web is just basically a flag uh, indicating that a file has come from the internet and uh, it, you know, a lot of Microsoft software will disable certain features uh, for security purposes if a document is, is flagged as having come from the internet. So in this case, you would have to deliver it in like, uh, you know, inside an ISO, inside a zip sort of thing to prevent that Mark of the Web propagation. Yeah, yeah, and that's to avoid the mark of the web, right? So the idea is that you download the ISO. The ISO has the mark of the web. Um, the user double clicks on it. Um, they now see the Word document pop up and they open the Word document and inside the ISO, it doesn't have it. Now ISO in particular, there's two things, there's two reasons for it, my understanding is. One is that the Windows compression to well, the ISO disk utility, like, you know, doesn't propagate mark of the web into that file. And also the mark of the web itself is actually stored in NTFS which is a file system type. So ISO itself is not a NTFS format, so therefore it can't store the Mark of the Web on that file. Um, yeah. Something also to add on Mark of the Web that so people know a little bit less about, yes, there's a mark that came from the internet, but it actually has the URL it came from as well. So for forensics and such, if you do find a file, <laughs> you, know, you can actually inspect the metadata of the file and find the, you know, the source, which is pretty handy. Now, you know, we started this off and you were saying the reason you were looking into this in the first place was to see if you, you know, if your own software was effective against the add-ins generally uh, and you found that it was. Uh, when it comes to this type where you're actually embedding stuff in a document, how effective is something like, uh, you know, an allow listing tool with your, you know, typical sort of policies applied to it? How effective is that at actually uh, preventing this as a vector? Because I, I just have a feeling we're going to see this one um, in the wild. In fact, I, I believe I, I spoke to uh, a friend at a large email security company. Gee, I wonder who that could be. And they said that they do see this stuff uh, here and there. And, and I think in, in, in there were some tweets where I saw some red teamers saying that they use this uh, uh, technique on engagements to a great deal of uh, success. You know, they get a lot of victory with it. Um, but, you know, what, is, what does Airlock do about this? Yeah, so for, for the add-ins in particular, because they're .NET code um, and the way they load, so regardless of it being a, a traditional Office add-in or a document add-in, we actually see and control those. So we would actually just block them from loading. Is there a way that you might get around airlock, though, by doing things in a certain way with this technique? With this technique, not not particularly, unless you have, um, you know, maybe you're able to sort of sign the, the add-in with a publisher that was trusted by airlock, as an example, would be the logic there. Now, look, you kind of alluded to it just a moment ago, but, um, you know, there are some changes coming up with Mark of the Web that are pretty positive, actually. It's one of those rare instances of Microsoft doing something kind of sensible, right, where they're, they're kind of uh, uh, going to take Mark of the Web more seriously, right, in, in more packages, and they're going to try to propagate it through various containers and, and, and whatnot. So my question, first of all, is where, are the, where is Mark of the Web changing? And second of all, how effective uh, do you think this is going to be in, in making things better? Yeah, so Microsoft themselves are, you know, investing in making Mark of the Web more embedded across all the, the OS itself. So, for example, I think you won't be able to even load ISO files which have Mark of the Web to mount them, as an example. So that's well, great. Well, I mean, that seems sensible, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and Microsoft's own compression, like like, like the, the zip capability that's built into Windows by default, actually, actually propagates Mark of the Web already. But what attackers are doing is they're going, okay, cool, well, um, we'll send it as a 7-zip file, right? And you hope or pray that the org you're targeting has 7-zip because 7-zip doesn't propagate the web, mark of the web, right? Because it's a different yeah. app that doesn't just doesn't have that feature. So, it, you know, WinZip does have the feature. But, you know, it's like all these different, you know, so it depends what tools you're using, right? So there's always going to be this wiggle room where someone's going to find this other format or, like, let's send it inside this other type of container. People are just going to enumerate every container that's ever existed and hope that user yeah. can open it, right? But I mean, ultimately, um, but yeah. ultimately, things are going to get a bit better with this stuff, you would, you would think, right? And this also affects macros. 
Um, yeah, well, so yeah, with, with macros, you know, um, I think Mark of the Web doesn't really have much play at the moment, but Office will support that going forward. So yeah. you'll be able to make group policy settings or by and and by default, and they're backporting it across Office. <laughs> you know, you'll be able to block all files loaded with Mark of the Web, which is you know that's a huge improvement, like massive to the whole industry because yeah. macro phishing still works. That's um, kind of what I was getting at, though, right? Cause, but that's not that's not the case yet. That's something that's coming down the track, is it? Yeah, so they're, they're doing like a stage rollout, you know, towards the you know, early, um, to the end of the year and, and, and towards early next year of you know all the different versions of Office that they have to update. Right. What I think's what I think's funny with this though, right, is like when you think about most documents. And sorry, we're talking about macros here because we started this whole thing talking about add-ins. But what I think is funny about the macro thing is, okay, say you've got a group policy setting that allows you to apply Mark of the Web. You know that 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 says Office won't load macros from documents with the mark of the web. Yep. Those documents in most orgs, like I'd be really interested to see what proportion of macro loads come from documents that would normally have the mark of the web, because I'm guessing it's a lot of them, right? Yeah, well, t- tons of like most documents would probably have mark that's, of the web, right? Because it's because <laughs> you've received them through email or download yeah. from the internet or you know. Yeah, so it's so, just not. I, I just wonder if that's if that's a group policy setting that's that anyone's going to really turn on. I mean, you may yeah, as well just uh, well, I, I, disable sorry, macros, yes, I don't, right? Yeah, I, I don't think it's got. I don't think it's got block documents. Um, I think it's got to be more of a case that it will block active content, right? So a macro is just not going to load. So the document is still open and you can read it. But if there was a no, macro no, no, no. But that's what I'm. But that's what I'm saying. And like already, you can disable macros, right? Just blanket disable them. I guess what I'm saying is disabling the loading of macros in documents with mark of the web is roughly equivalent to banning the loading of macros. Full stop, right? Because most documents get passed around by email and stuff, and they're going to get the mark. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's pretty much true. But what's what's interesting there as well is like, like even on Twitter when I was like put this thing up originally, the, the, I had a tweet come up where people were like, no, we, we just put in the document that the manual steps on how to right click on a document, go to the security section, and remove the mark of the web manually, and we've convinced users to do that. <laughs> I guess I guess uh, you know life always finds a way, right? Uh, Daniel Shell, thank you so much for joining me uh, to have a bit of a discussion about that. That's all you know. The funny thing is, people are sick of talking about macros, but like they are responsible for so many shells and so much badness. And uh, you know this this add-in technique uh, that you uh, that you demoed so nicely in that blog post. You know, I just uh, I feel like that's one that's uh, that's going to be popping a few as well. Uh, great to chat to you, my friend. Cheers. No worries. Thanks, Matt. That was Daniel Shell of Airlock Digital there. Uh, as you all know, it's a product I recommend and I think it's great and you can find it at airlockdigital.com. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back next week with more security news and analysis. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.